You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, which features another Tillman scholar, one of the illustrious Tillman scholars, we'll get to him in just a minute. And sorry, sort of this serendipitous way that we met with a very interesting uh, connection to one of our other Hazard Ground guests. So that's coming up here in just a minute. Just a few of our normal reminders to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Keep up with the show and everything we have going on. Of course, you can connect with us that way uh, via DM, sliding the DMs, whatever they, whatever the kids say now. But you can certainly use the message function on all of those social media platforms to connect with us. We love hearing from you guys for guest suggestions. Of course, uh, you can go to our website or email us, producer at hazardground.com, and uh, we'll take guest suggestions there as well. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com. You click on the Sponsors tab, or at the bottom of the homepage, there's a little button that says Amazon. You click to it, it redirects you right to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations featured here on the show. So it's a great and easy way for you to help out veterans charities just by doing Amazon shopping. also works on your smartphone. It's really simple. It'll redirect you to the app. All the credit card information is saved if you have it there and everything else. So it's very user-friendly and convenient. Please continue to leave us Apple reviews and five-star reviews. Uh, The algorithm, for those who don't know, we've said this every single week, but if you're a first-time listener, the algorithm to grow the show, we need more Apple reviews. I don't know why Apple does it that way, but they do. So if you leave an Apple review, it doesn't have to be a long one. It could be just a couple of words. Give us five stars, thumbs up, tell us why you love the show. And, of course, uh, make sure you download or you follow us, rather, on uh, our YouTube channel. Um, just search Hazard Ground YouTube and then download the Kill Cliff TV app because Kill Cliff TV is where you can also see all of our episodes. And don't forget about our friends and partners at Kill Cliff, killcliff.com to order all of your clean energy drinks, some of the best products on the market. They have CBD as well. If you're into that, Joe Rogan, big endorser of uh, Kill Cliff and Kill Cliff CBD. So again, killcliff.com to get all of your clean energy drinks. Now let's get on to this week's guest, who was a West Point graduate, graduated in 2008, went on to deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan, and then left the active duty for the Army Reserve after five years. He went on to be a Tillman Scholar and is currently the managing partner at a real estate investment agency that's tailored right towards working with veterans and as well, he is somebody I met through one of our other Hazard Ground guests, Jake Harriman, who was on the show a few weeks back at More Perfect Union. It is Samir Patel joining us here on the Hazard Ground po- Podcast. <laughs> Samir, welcome, brother, and thanks for being here as I forget the name of my show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, fantastic uh, and very interesting uh, sort of way that you and I came across each other. More Perfect Union started by Jake Harriman and our good friend Garrett Cathcart, who was also a, uh, a former Hazard Ground guest uh, put us together all at the same table and we sat down and uh, had our breakfast and uh, you and I started chatting it up and I, I talked to you about the podcast and after reading your story, I think it's fantastic that you decided to come on. An interesting note too, by the way, you bought a hotel at 16 years old? 
not not 16, 19. When 19, I was I'm sorry. At yeah, West so Point. You were, you yeah. were at West Point and you bought a hotel. Yeah. Either way, the word teen and hotel don't go together. Yeah. And when they do, it's usually followed by the story of and left the $750 in damages in the room. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was good. I mean, USA, and many, many people may know this, but USA gives all, you know, military, young military, soon to be military officers a, a loan. Yeah. Um, I bought a car. You bought a hotel. Yeah, and I used mine with, as the, as a down payment on a hotel, and had some. I had a lot of help along the way. Don't get me wrong, that but is uh, nice. um, you know, the first dead body I ever saw was at the hotel before my Iraq and Afghanistan deployment. So, all right, was, did not expect to hear that little uh, anecdotal <laughs> story. But uh, let's start back at West Point. How and why did you uh, end up at the academy? I think I was looking for something that challenged me on many different fronts, not just academically, but physically and. I wanted to exercise my leadership abilities as well. And the academy was the only school that I looked at that really? answered and yeah, spoke on, on, on those fronts. Interesting. Now, you grew up in Georgia, um, and clearly, you know, you have a lot of big schools on there. And the fact that you, you skewed the Georgia Bulldogs for uh, West Point probably leaves some of your fellow high school classmates looking at you sideways. But that said, um, was, was there. Anything else about the military that enticed you? I mean, you got to remember, when you signed up here, we're talking 2004, we're at the height of both two wars, or at least the beginning of two wars going on. None of that deterred you. Not, I mean, not in the slightest. If anything, it probably motivated me to join because there was something challenging going on with the nation, the global war on terror, and I felt I could contribute in some way. And the best way I could contribute was, was going to the academy and becoming an officer in the Army. Any other ties I, to the military at all in your family? Or is this a whole brand no, new? None, none. None, yeah, okay. none. Like, and, and I was definitely a lot, I left a lot of people in my family scratching their heads on what I was doing. My father even made me write an essay to him, not even to the academy or to the school, but an essay to him on why I wanted to join, um, which was actually very helpful. It actually helped me clarify why I wanted to go and, and all that. Wow. Um, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll say this, like, I used to party around or go to like i used to sneak into college parties when i was younger and Mm -hmm. the first couple weekends you do it it's fun like wow this is amazing this is what i have to look forward to in college but after you do it a few times then you realize that wow is this is there all there is to to college just drinking on the weekends and, and you know and goofing off and i i realized pretty quickly that i wanted something more and more meaningful and the military was an excellent way to to achieve that what was in that letter to your dad and do you still have it yeah, we still have it. In fact, my father framed it in his office. Um, <laughs> he made me sign it. He made me date it, and uh, he still—he actually keeps it on a frame in his office. That's and I look awesome. at it every time I visit. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Um, now I know you have to write an essay for your West Point application as well, right? You do, yeah. Okay. Did you kind of did the two mirror each other, or no? Is it? I forget. Is it a specific question on the West Point essay, or? You know, they, they didn't actually mirror each other. So the okay. one I wrote to my dad was actually very, like, personal, like, what it means for me. Because I kind of wanted to – I wrote it with him as the audience in mind. Mm-hmm. And he obviously knows me, you know, personally. Um, and so I wrote it with more personal things, like, you know, I wanted to be better. I wanted to do meaningful things. I wanted to build more discipline in my life. I wanted to go achieve things. Um, whereas for the West Point essay, I, I'm pretty sure, like, I incorporated some aspects of my personal life. And like what it would mean for me personally, but I really focused on the Constitution, and you know I'm, and I don't want to sound like a cliche, but you know the Constitution is one of the most amazing documents I believe that's ever been written in the history of the world, 
um, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And uh, I, I centered my essay around that, actually. That's, I mean, that's insane from the standpoint of, you know, the foresight at that age to even think about those documents in those ways. Like, I, I didn't really think about the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence other than what I had to know for history class. I mean, obviously understanding the importance of it. To get the true appreciation of the value of it, I didn't even learn until I was probably a captain. Like, after I had deployed, like, it meant so much more to me after that fact when you had literally put your life on the line for a piece of paper. Um, you know, I, I think that, at least for me, it took me that long to do it. So you being an eight, 17, 18-year-old kid, to have that kind of, I, I guess, foresight is, is impressive, to say the least. Well, I think the genesis, of, and I remember this pretty vividly, actually. Like, I was surfing the web one day, and I came across West Point and its school website. And somewhere on the website, they have the officer oath. And, you know, when I was young, I'm like, wow, this is an oath I have to take when I join. And the oath references the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And from there, I decided to do a little more research. And I probably was 15, 16 at the time. But from what I read on the website about the Constitution and the oath we take as officers, I just started diving deeper and deeper into the Constitution. Uh, and Benjamin Franklin, um, I was very lucky to be exposed to Benjamin Franklin very on, very early on at a young age. And, and I know he had a major hand in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and all that. And so it was just lucky for me that I was able to like mirror my hero, Benjamin Franklin, and then this document, the Constitution together at a young age. And it just made perfect sense for me that a big portion of my life will be spent in defensive defense of those ideals what was your father's response to the letter you wrote him was he like okay i get it now go ahead good luck go go go, go attack the world or is he still skeptical <laughs> i i think he was like okay go for it he's been i was very lucky because most asian parents don't um are very myopic let me put it this way they're very myopic in the careers they want for their kids sure doctor dentist engineer pharmacist lawyer those are the top five, top three professions that they want their, their kids to do. And I, you know, had to explain to him that that's not what I want. And he was very encouraging, even as we were growing up, like, Hey, you should be in sports. You should be in the club. You should be in community things. And so all those things shaped who I was. And so the Academy was the only place and the army was the only place that I could find all of that stuff in one, one place. So now you get to West Point. Are you in like culture shock for what you're walking into? Were you prepared for it or did you do as much reading as you could on the internet about it? I mean, what is it like when you first set ground on West Point? Yeah, I don't think there's enough reading you could ever do to prepare you for what you end up with in the first week, first day. I mean, I, to give you an example. I grew up as a vegetarian. I didn't have my first steak until I came to the academy. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you know, right there, like, I'm already like. Now, did you eat like, that steak out of necessity or you actually just wanted to try it? Probably a little bit of both. Okay. I mean, I lost probably 15, 20 pounds that first eight weeks while I was at the academy, and I thought I was pretty fit. I mean, I did cross-country all four years. I, I was a tennis team captain, all that type of stuff. Pretty athletic, but I still somehow lost weight um, the first eight weeks. And, uh, and yeah, like, I think I remember one instance where, like, we were eating peanut butter out of, like, out of the jar because, like, we just couldn't get enough or, like, I couldn't eat enough. Wow. Um of the food. And I always got in trouble for like stupid stuff. Like you have to eat a certain way at the Academy. And like, I, I just had a hard time adjusting to that type of stuff. And so eating out of a jar was the only thing I had left. Yeah. Well, you know, again, um, given my Italian background, eating a certain way just means getting as much of it as quick as as you can. So if that was the case, I might've been all right. 
at West Point growing up. Um, you know, as you're going through it, and again, four years is a long time, obviously, and you know, it sets you up for a lot of things. But as you start to see this this world develop around you and the global war on terror develop around you, um, and you're going through this experience, was there any point in time where you thought maybe you had chosen the wrong path? I don't think ever I felt that during the time I was there or maybe even the first couple of years I was in the army. I think afterward, once I started reading more scholarly works and like understanding more about the world and geopolitics and things like that, then I may have realized that, you know, the Academy and the military is definitely wasn't the wrong, was the right path for me for sure. Um, but I have a lot of thoughts on the way we prosecuted the war at the national and political levels that I, I have a lot of reticence about. And, you know, I realize that not everyone's perfect. I think politicians and leaders, and, I, and you know this and I know this, that leaders have to make the best decisions they can with the information they have at the time they have it. And they don't have, you know, years and years to make decisions. Um, but I do think that we made some strategic errors and um, fellow soldiers uh, paid for it. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't think there's a single one of us um, who deployed to Iraq and or Afghanistan um, or did both for that matter. You know, look back on it now with and Monday morning quarterback it and know that we could have done things differently and netted a different result. Um, in the same respect, I think that there's still a large contingent of people who say that if we had still been in Afghanistan, we'd have different results on a lot of things. And there may be a fair argument for that. Now, I don't I don't think it's anything that you or I or even a group of us could sit there and come to any sort of definitive conclusion on. But. Um, and, and we've had this, I've had this conversation with many of the, the guests on, on the hazard ground, just simply that, you know, uh, we all understand that, you know, things that were, were happening at the time, theoretically was the best information we had to, to work with and, uh, good, bad or indifferent. I did the best with what I had and that's really all I can control. I, I, I think there's a certain amount of, yes, in a macro level, there were, there were decisions and things that were made that affected a lot of us, uh, negatively. And some people paid, you know, uh, the ultimate price for it and made the ultimate sacrifice for it. But uh, I can't, I, I personally can't go down that rabbit hole. Um, I understand that people do, but for me, it's, it's, it's a dead end, right? I'll, I'll chase my tail for hours on right, wrong, or indifferent. Yeah. And that's the, one of the biggest things I had to overcome myself is it's in the past. There's nothing I can right. do about it. And all I can really do is take these lessons and observe what happened and, and try to make a better life for myself and, you know, for, for the nation. Um, and I feel very strongly about service, which is why the, the Tillman scholarship in particular, um, appealed to me and why I applied in the first place. Right, we'll get to that. Um, let's, uh, you finished West Point. It's, uh, what May of 2008, somewhere in that time frame, yep. right? Yep. Uh, you are headed where right after and how quickly do you get there? So I was an armor officer. Um, mm-hmm. and so, uh, went to Fort Knox, did armor training I will say this, that right after graduation, though, um, my dad and I, we climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa as part of my graduation leave. And that was fantastic. Wow. And um, I'm really glad I did that because, you know, a few short years later, my dad ended up having surgery uh, involving his health. And it kind of has left him unable to go do physical things like we used to do. And I'm so glad that I was able to do that at an older age, right? I was 21, 22 with my dad, do something really meaningful. And I'm really glad I took that time to do it because the next five years after that were just a whirlwind through Iraq, Afghanistan, armor training, all the other schools I went to, stuff like that. 
when you say that, I, I, people always do that kind of stuff. And so many military people have that that bug. Like, hey, let's go climb Mount Kilimanjaro. I'm a loser. Like, I never had any desire to do any of that. None whatsoever. I, you know, I was just like, okay, let's go. Uh, let, let, let's go to a ball game and, and hang out, and you know, take a vacation to the beach. I'm, I'm I, I wish I was more adventurous. I guess I'm not. I, now I'm just old. Now I want to do all those things, and I'm, my body's too old and can't do them all. So, uh, good for you. So, uh, you were after army school. What? what you're sent to what unit? Uh, 114 Cav out of Fort Lewis. We were okay. a striker. Striker Brigade. So that's two ID. Yeah, second infantry division, and um, it's good because I don't like to walk, and that's why I picked armor <laughs> in the first place. Because West I was going to ask you that too. Like, did you choose armor, or did they, is it where you ended up? Ended up? With no, I, I definitely okay. chose it. First choice. Fort Lewis was my first choice. Um, I had a really good buddy. His name is Rajiv. He did actually all the legwork. Like he said, "Hey, you need to go to Lewis because they're on the patch chart. They're going to deploy." right after you get get done with OBC. So we're going to go to Lewis. And so me and Rajiv, we just picked Lewis. We both picked armor. Um, and so I credited him for, like, lining so me up perfectly. So you, you had the, the notion to want to deploy as soon as you got to your unit. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, that's why we train. That's why we exist. Yeah, that, that doesn't mean still you got to be excited about it. <laughs> well, when you're young, I guess you don't know any better, if, yeah. if I could put it one way. like that. Well, yeah, oh, okay. Um, so how quickly after you get to Lewis do you end up uh, getting on a bird and hopping over? I mean, as soon as I got to Lewis, I get a week to in-process, and they send me to NTC to go meet my platoon at NTC. Wow. Um, I take over. I'm pretty sure I didn't do a good job in that first six lane that <laughs> they put me in. I mean, I'm just like a brand spanking new lieutenant, and I know a little bit enough to be dangerous, but... Thankfully, I had really good section leaders yeah. and a really good platoon sergeant that like really coached and mentored me because I needed a lot of it. Yeah, um, I mean that's that's the problem with being a lieutenant. You know enough to get into trouble, but not enough to get out of it, right? Like yeah. that's that's generally the, yeah. the the rule of it. Um, and for me, it was more of my mouth that got me in trouble than anything else. But you know, my mouth could get me out of it. It's just you know that's why I, I let other people do the work. Um, after you finish this NTC thing, I mean, are you? Are you in this mindset of just like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's get down range? Because I guess, did you ever stop to think, having no prior military experience, clearly having no combat experience, that all of this notion of what you wanted to do versus what the reality of the notion of what you actually have to do, like you could have never seen the gap there, right? You you can't. I, unless like someone has, you have like a really intimate conversation with somebody and they kind of tell you everything before you do all this stuff, you can't. And even then, like, unless you, this is the military is something you have to experience. It's not something you can truly just read about and, and capture what you need to capture. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I'm wondering, you know, for all this gung ho piss and vinegar and everything else that you, you have, you get out of NTC, you go right down range shortly thereafter, right? Yeah, we get a month of leave, and so we get a month of leave, literally, and I had no leave. Because uh, you climbed the mountain. Because, Good job. Yeah, because I have no leave saved up, and so I end up like <laughs> sitting at Fort Lewis while everyone's out having graduation leave, and then we deploy right in August. So I got there in, in June, and August, we're on a bird, August 8th. And this one is to Afghanistan, right? This one was to Iraq. Okay, so this is Iraq. So this is 09? Oh, wait. Uh, yeah, oh, 09. You're right. Okay. 09. 09. All right. Uh, and you head where in Iraq? So we were in Diyala province, which okay. is like the northeast sort of section of Iraq. It borders mm-hmm. Iran, and it has a big five-step Kurdistan in there. 
And our primary mission when we got there was to help, you know, by 09, a lot of stuff had been pacified. The surge had already occurred and all that type of stuff. And so, but there was a lot of, um, how do I put it? A lot of influence from Iran into that portion of Iraq. Yep. And, and so one of the missions that we had was to do a tripartite sort of mission, joint operation with the Kurd Peshmerga, the militia, the Arab Iraqi army and us. And, you know, our mission was to do these joint patrols along these villages along the border. Um, and it was quite interesting because it involved not only like, you know, interdicting kind of Iraq, Iranian influence coming across the border, but also trying to integrate these two cultures, these two armies, these two fighting forces and, um, you know, try to get them to work together as one, one country, one nation. I mean, I, I'm curious, <laughs> you, uh, you have this, as we mentioned a moment ago, this sort of romantic notion of, of war like many of us do prior to actually getting there and what it's going to be all about. And then all of a sudden you end up at a combat outpost in northwestern Iraq uh, with 25 Americans and it's just you guys and a bunch of Kurds hanging around. Do you ever just do that thing where you look around and go, how the hell did I end up here? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> you know, my fear at the time – and it probably still lingers maybe in like a subconscious way. My fear, not the Kurds, but someone of the Iraqi army was getting shot in the back. Yep. Um, and we're all living together. We're all eating together and you're doing all you can to integrate these people. And there's all sorts of conflicts, right? Like, Oh, this guy stole this guy's cell, this guy stole that guy's cell phone or these guys didn't get enough food. You're like mediating all these conflicts it has nothing to do with combat. It has everything to do with building a team and getting people that traditionally don't like each other to work together. And um, I think it, that, that in and of itself was something I, I probably was not prepared for as much in OBC. I definitely was prepared for like, hey, react to contact, react, you know, call a medevac, you know, that sort of thing, call for fire. This is how you maneuver your vehicles. You know, this is how you do a court on a search, all that type of stuff. But the the stuff that got me scratching my head was, hey, this guy stole that guy's cell phone. What do you do to, to mediate that conflict? Yeah, I was almost uh, naive to that whole concept. I, mean, I worked hand-in-hand -hand with Iraqis every single day during my first deployment. Uh, and mm -hmm. it never once occurred to me that they would turn on us, even though that we had reports of you know bad guys trying to infiltrate and get in, right, like moles and everything else. It never once bothered to occur to me, and, and I'm trying to remember if I ever had that thought or that fear that, you know, I could turn around and one of these guys could shoot me. Um, and I, I well, guess we lived, we slept together, and yeah. like we lived in these shipping containers, modified shipping containers with like six to eight, six to nine dudes in in one. And I don't think I slept whenever I was on that outpost because I was always afraid that some guy was going to roll a grenade into one of them and kill nine people yep. just like that. Right. Yeah. So I found myself like not sleeping probably for the better part of a year. And, um, you know, I think I, I, I it took me a long time to kind of unwind those bad sleeping patterns. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, thankfully nothing happened to us. It's, uh, it's how I lost a good friend of mine, Bobby in Afghanistan. Um, you know, he was, Inside him at the time, he was an army major and he worked with an Air Force colonel and uh, lieutenant colonel. And they were doing one of those mid team deals in Afghanistan. And they just had a guy who walked in, turned around, shot them both right in the back of the head. Uh, and they both both were killed instantly. And you know, um, and I remember I, I got that news at my coming home second 
ceremony on my second deployment. And he was a guy that Bobby was a guy that, you know, we went to uh, the career course together. We were in the same unit, you know, never deployed together, but we had kind of parallel careers uh, in our time together that always crossed with each other. Um, yeah. And, and that, that, that whole, like I said, that's why in retrospect, I feel like I was naive to the idea that that could have ever happened when in reality it, it was very much something that, that could have happened. But uh, anyway, we, we, we digress. So, you're at this outpost. Um, what's day-to-day life like? What's operational tempo like? I mean, you know, uh, are you able to accomplish your mission kind of deal? You know, mission, like defining a mission is a very interesting word. Right. Because the mission meant so many different things. I mean, on one hand, it says do a patrol, right? But then the mission involves so much other, so many other things, like integrating these two forces together. Um, so a lot of effort was spent on getting these two forces coordinated. And I think for the large part for what we did with what we had to work with, I think we succeeded in, in, in a limited sense. But then, you know, when ISIS came around a few years later, I, the very same outpost that I was defending and was responsible for, like that place got overrun. All a lot of the villages that I was responsible for visited, they all got overrun. Um, so it's hard for me to say like how successful we were because, I mean, at the time, yeah, I guess we were. But then if you look back, if you look later, what happened, you know, I, I can't say that it was that successful or that impactful for what we did. But I, I will say this, that I, I do believe that we added a lot of stability to that part of the to that part of the Iraq. And I think a lot of good things were done with the stability that they had during the time that we were there. And I think that says something because I think it also showed people what, what, what happens when you live in a stable society, like projects start moving forward, villages start to grow, children, you know, go get educated and things like that. And they kind of needed that stability. Um, and I'm grateful that ISIS was defeated, largely defeated and driven back out. But uh, I, uh, I don't, that's the thing about wars that you, and I, and I don't think there's like a good way to like resolve this. We, we put so much effort into time while we're there, but then how do we reconcile that with what we see after the fact that we have no control over later? And we want to like, you know, somehow like romanticize what we did, but it's, it's tough to do that sometimes. Yeah. I, I mean, you have this mindset your entire time at West Point and, you know, leading up to the deployment about all that you wanted to do. Um, and while that mindset is, is, great and it's fantastic and it's ideal when the first round whizzes by you the, the the ideal doesn't matter anymore it's about sort of survival in that moment so what is that like for you the first time that you're dealing with an engagement with the enemy and, and you know the realness of the whole thing so for us like our our deployment wasn't really kinetic mm-hmm. insofar as like getting like hit with ieds and stuff like that and getting pop shots i think that's what i was saying i think we brought a lot of stability because there wasn't much of that Okay. at all um there were some instances where like we had a lot of our unit encountered a lot of suicide v-bed type stuff that resulted in some deaths of soldiers which very unfortunate for us I, I felt like for us it was dealing with the fear because we did a lot of nighttime cordon and searches and a lot of like raids and things like that and i don't know if i had personal fear i think my fear was like about my guys like because what I didn't want, what kept me up at night, in addition to not getting, trying not to get shot in the back from my own Iraqi partners, was like, I'm going to send an 18-year-old dude into this dark hut 
and it is very likely or possible that he could get shot in the face. And I spent a lot of time, like, just trying to get over that or, like, you know, manage that if that were to occur. And thankfully, none of that occurred, actually. Like, we we did not have many brushes with, with much, um, which, is, which is good. When do you end up leaving um, Iraq? After a full year? Full year, yeah. So August to August. We leave in 2010, and uh, and then we come back to Lewis. Okay, and then after that, you're you're going to deploy again. How quickly does all that happen? Yeah, like a whole another year, right? So back then it was still a year on year off type yeah. of cycle, and uh, striker brigades were were heavy in demand because they're highly mobile and they're really good in Iraq. I mean, you could get around pretty quickly. Like my striker could get up to 65, 70 miles an hour if I needed it to. Um, but then you know the focus was now toward Afghanistan. And I believe General Petraeus had just been, or McChrystal had just been announced the leader. He ended up leaving prematurely. Then Petraeus, I believe, took over. And uh, we end up getting redeployed back to Afghanistan. And this time, uh, word got out that I was pretty good with money inside my brigade or my <laughs> battalion. And so, wait, wait, wait. How, how does word like that get out? I was just talking about it with people. So, like, simultaneously while I'm in the military, I'm running, like, a second career. Yeah, and you own a hotel. Yeah, I own a hotel. <laughs> I bought a debt collection company. Um, not while I was in Iraq, but, like, before I left for Iraq. And then right after I came back from Iraq, I bought a, you know, I had this debt collection company. Through that, we were able to acquire, like, 20 houses. And, you know, I'm always talking about real estate. I'm talking about, like, entrepreneurial thinking type stuff, making money, that sort of thing. Um, anyway, my brigade commander or my, I guess my brigade XO, who was my former XO at the squadron level, understands I know a lot about money. And so he makes me the brigade comptroller managing all like 30 million bucks of, of, of our taxpayer money, um, you know, doling out contracts, things like that. And so that's what I ended up doing stateside and then during the deployment as well. Now, the cool thing about that, though, was like I got to just travel a lot and and I got to see at like an operational level, like how we do business as an army, and and really as a nation, right? Because oh, really that's, that's got to be the, how, ug- the the ugly underbelly, man. Yeah, how we do business is. as an army. Uh, I, I've been around a long time, and I probably haven't even seen half the things you have. But I know it's. Uh, let's just say we're not the most efficient bunch with government dollars. No, I mean I, I don't. C seventeen <laughs> uniform changes in twenty years. <laughs> Yeah, so I would say this, that the challenge with the Army when it comes to money is that we change leadership so quickly. Um, we don't, like, unlike other nations, like, we don't have generals that serve for, like, 20 years. Right. We have generals that serve maybe 5, 10 years max, and they're in four different jobs during their time that they're general officers. And it's very hard to, to plan long-term and which, when you can't plan long-term, that's what you, that's what you see, is in, what you see is inefficiency. Because plans change, priorities change. In our nation, like, our budget as a nation, like, I was there during sequestration when we had to worry about, like, potentially not even paying soldiers somehow because Congress could not. This was, like, 2013, I think, 2012. I remember. I remember. 2011, when Obama was facing a lot of pressure from, you know, all sorts. We, we were told to go to drill whether you're getting paid or not. It's fine. Yeah, you show right? up. Don't worry about it. Yeah, so, like, it's. I got to see firsthand how the money, how the money influences the army and stuff like that. And yeah. Um, so when you go to Afghanistan yeah. with this job, are you like happy about it? Or are you more wanting to? Because this is a far cry from 
the guy who wanted to go, you know, kick down, well, I didn't want to say kick down doors, but, you know, who wants to go be at the center of the action, you, you couldn't be further away from it, crunching numbers. Well, I'll tell you this, right? Like, I wouldn't be doing that anyway, right? Because I, I did two years as a platoon leader, and I was about to become an XO, but then the squadron or the new brigade XO says, hey, do you want this job instead? And I'm like, yeah, I'll take that job. Because, like, I love my XOs, but, like, they're just bitch boys, basically. And it's not a, it's a thankless job being an XO on a line unit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and I was offered this opportunity to deal with money. And, like, I have a really keen interest in business. And so it just seemed like a much better fit for, for who I was and now, my experience. in retrospect, um, does this job as the comptroller help you out post-military life? Is it one of those things where it's like you look back and go, thank God I took that job. I got so many extra things about it that I might not have had going into the civilian world. Yeah, absolutely. I'm the type of person that will take any situation and turn it into an opportunity. So what I learned about government contracting and Army budgeting, I started a lending company that lends money to government contractors. And, you know, the funny thing about government contractors, like you could win a million-dollar contract today, right? Let's say cleaning. You could win a janitorial contract at a military base, right? Mm -hmm. The million-dollar contract is pretty great. But you probably, what you don't realize is you probably need about fifty dollars to $100,000 to get started on that contract before the government even pays you. And the government's not going to pay you for at least probably 60 days. you got to set up for 30 days, <laughs> invoice, and then get paid 15 to 30 days after that. So you've got to float yourself a big wad of cash before you get paid. And so I fulfilled the need. Uh, I call it mobilization capital. And I, I created this lending company and we lent money to government contractors to mobilize them on their government contracts. And I knew what government contracts looked like. I knew, I knew the federal acquisition regulations. I knew all the safety features I could implement in my lending program. And we ended up lending out $25, $25 million in a pretty short amount of time. I need some of that. If you got any left over, let me know. I mean, I could use I could use a couple of K mil whatever. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so after this second deployment, you get back what the end of two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, mid two thousand twelve, mid two thousand twelve. Okay, um, what's next for you from a military standpoint? So uh, I wanted to go to the career course, but uh, for some reason I just came late and uh, I missed my course date. So they ended up making me a. Uh, troop commander of a basic training of a 19 Delta scout cavalry basic training unit. And, uh, I ended up training soldiers, training the newest soldiers that joined the army at that time for 14 weeks in 19 Delta training. Um, and that was, that was a lot of hard work to be honest. Why? I mean, it's, you're, you're back in basic training, right? So it's a six day work week. Your PT is at five o'clock, five twenty in the morning that sort of thing. And then ranges sometime last till midnight. And there's a lot of regulation that goes around along with a training environment. Um, and I mean, I did work, but nothing like my drill sergeants. I mean, my drill sergeants are the real heroes. I was just there sure. to make sure that we were properly resourced. Um, and then to show my face and make sure we don't do anything dumb. But really the drill sergeants, I have an immense amount of respect for drill sergeants because it is, it is very, very tough to maintain a family. A lot of my drill sergeants were, were pursuing their education while they were drilled and then dealing with privates, you know, and all the dumb stuff they do and doing it for 18 hours a day, 14 hours a day. It's not, it's not easy. So that drill sergeant badge that people wear on their uniform, I mean, it's well-earned and they're worthy of our respect. Uh, within a year, you decide to leave the active duty. Why? Yeah. So I got, so I did well as a commander. 
Um, I will note that I did Seer School. I knocked out Seer School. Oh, that's awesome. Seer C. Um, that was a lot of fun. I did it mainly to lose the weight. I lost like 15 pounds in 20 Yeah, well, that's because you don't eat. I mean, that's what happens yeah. when you're a prisoner. Uh, they don't exactly <laughs> give you, you know, five-star meals. Um, did, now, yeah. did you, just out of curiosity, I want to push pause on the, the getting out. So, was that something you you always had in your sights or it just sort of sort of fell in your lap kind of deal? We had a like a weird two-month cycle break between cycles. And so I'm like, i got to go. And like they were giving us schools. So I'm going to pick your school. And my sister, who's also in the Army, who's a Blackhawk pilot, she was three years behind me at the academy. She arranged for me um, to, to get to your school at Fort Rucker. And, how does uh, she arrange that? If she's like a lieutenant and you're not like, how does she have that much just, pull? Yeah, she just she just knew she, she makes fun with everybody, and so she knew the OIC, and the OIC put me on the wait list, and some slots opened up, and and here I was. Not bad. I always say like that's when I I first learned to see her school during my my deployment in 05 when I was, uh, you know, attached with the SF guys. And I, I knew a couple of people who had went and they told me about it. I'm like, that's the one school I want to go to. I think it's the best training in the army. Hands that, down like offer. literally that's the one school I would want to go to more than any. And for the civilians listening, survive, evade, resist, and escape S E R E Sear school. Um, uh, and, and that's basically what it, it's a three week course, right? Still three weeks. Yeah. 21 days. Yeah. yeah 21 days. And basically they treat you like a prisoner of war and, and, uh, you have to figure out how to survive through it. Um, that's the kind of short, you know, uh, one sentence version of it, elevator speech of it. And uh, I, I just think it's awesome. I've heard so many stories of people who have went there. Fantastic. I mean, look, if you don't like getting slapped around and, and having ice cold water poured on you, uh, then don't go. Uh, if that's if that's something that bothers you, secret school isn't for you. But if you feel like you can take it and you want to find out how mentally tough you are, secret school is the place to be. I, I, I joke that it's excellent preparation for marriage. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but yeah, um, every day you're trying to survive, evade, resist, and escape marriage. It makes a ton of sense. Uh, thank God my wife doesn't listen. Um, but nonetheless, that's outstanding. That's really well done. What was the one part of Sears School for you that was just sort of that seminal moment that you always remember? There was – I – so I was a senior officer at the time. I wasn't the SRO. I was in like one, one or two um, iterations, but um, of training. I what I enjoyed the moment for me was like being able to lead like younger soldiers or through like we hadn't slept in days. Like everyone's like feeling really terrible about themselves, but like I was there and I, I never felt like depressed. I never felt. I don't know how do you put it. Like I couldn't go on or anything like that. I always felt like, Hey, I'm the guy. And like, it's up to me to like get us from point A to point B because you do a lot of walking in your school, like at night. Um, you, it's not really recommended you do it during the day, but, uh, yeah, like I just found myself like, wow, I'm like, I'm actually leading this thing. Like I'm getting us from point A to point B. I'm actually like making things happen and pushing us along and all this other stuff. And that was very, very good for me. The other moment, um, and I think a lot of senior school graduates will say this is at the very end when you finally sort of get released and they play the national anthem um, and the code of conduct and they recite the code of conduct at the very end. And like you're out there, you're saluting the flag. It's there. You're dirty. You're trashed pretty much. But like I think everybody, myself included, just teared up when they when they raise that flag at the very end. And uh, wow. I'll never forget that. That's awesome. Uh, the the one story, one of the stories I heard from uh, one of my 
one of the guys I, I deployed with that went there, he talked to me about how, you know, they had him in the room and he was, he hadn't slept for days and hadn't eaten for days. And, you know, they offered him a cup of coffee and, uh, uh, and asked him to sign, you know, they, they put a piece of paper in front of him asking to sign, you know, that I'm being treated well and this, that, and the other. And, 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 you know, they slid a sentence in there that was denouncing the United States and he said, no, I can't sign it. And, you know, and he went back and forth with them for like 10 minutes. And then eventually they walked out of the room and they came back in later and offered, put, put the cup of coffee back down in front of him with the pencil. And before he even said a word, he said, I picked up the pencil, snapped, snapped it in half and smacked the cup of coffee away um, immediately. And then he turned around and said, they just knocked me out of the chair and started beating the crap out of me. I said, yeah, <laughs> sounds about right. So. Uh, that's the one story somebody told me from serious school that always sticks with me and I don't know why that intrigues me like I want that to happen like I don't want that to happen but you know um, the the idea of the mental fortitude of the whole thing really sort of for lack of a better way to phrase it turns me on like you know it's almost like you it's that scenario where you want to be pushed so you know how hard you can push back yeah there's there's a lot to be said about that Um, I think I may have had that notion when I entered the school, but when I left the school, um, and what they teach us directly, it's not about that per se, about trying to hold out. I think it's about, there's a greater goal there, which is you have to lead and you have to like return with honor and you have to be able to like live to fight another day, I think is, is the way I actually left with that. It's interesting. Um, I mean, I get, I get, I get that sort of, you know, transfer from, uh, thought process, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Like, so for example, like, you know, knocking food away, for example, like, yeah, I get it. Like you probably don't want to, you do not want to be disloyal to the nation and say anything bad about the country and things like that. But at the same time, like if you can get your hands on food, you have a duty to get your hands on food in order to escape. Yeah. Makes complete sense. Yeah. Anyway, it's a great school. I I mean, it looks any young Military folks out there listening, go to Sears School if they give you the opportunity. Um, all right, so after Sears School, you get out, right? Like, what brings you to this decision? Yeah, like, so I got promoted to be, like, the battalion F3 after command. And, uh, yeah, making PowerPoints and, you know, it's very important work. Don't get me wrong. Like, it's very important work. Oh, don't lie. Officers do. Don't lie. It is. I mean, nothing I've happens I've been an without, assistant you know. S3. Don't lie. <laughs> talk about bitch boys. Dear Lord. Yeah, I know. Well, that didn't last long for me. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> it's uh, look. Be, learning to be a good st- staff officer is important, um, and it will, it will make you a better commander down the road. Understanding what has to go on behind the scenes to be an effective commander, but Correct. but yeah, it is absolutely. a lot of bitch work. Like it, it, you know, it, yeah. it, it's it's not fun. Well, what, the the thing for me though is like I I realize as I look at the like promotion thing. I didn't want to wait another five years to, to be in command again. Like if the army somehow, and this may be arrogant to say, but you know, I want to command and I want to leave. So that's, that's why I'm there. But if the army said, Hey, you'd be a commander again in whatever capacity leading something within two years, I'd have been like, great. I can, I can do that. In fact, I wanted a break, but to wait another five years, six years for a command, a command that I may not even get. And on top of that, if someone doesn't like me, if my senior raider doesn't even like me, you know, for things that are out of my control, then I may never even get a command. I may not even get right. promoted. And I cannot, like, I fundamentally have a problem with the military on this front. And I, I don't know of any other better way to, to fix it. So, you know, I will say that. But I, I just could not sign myself up for a life where, like, I'm judged by others 
on subjective things, potentially subjective things. And, you know, I, I've just done too much. I've been through, I've educated myself too much. Like I've done too much to kind of like allow myself to fall into that trap. And so I, I just said, look, it's time for me to, to hang it up and I'm going to go pursue my entrepreneurial dreams. Uh, look, uh, after 23 plus years of doing this, your assessment isn't wrong. There's a lot of subjectivity in it and it's frustrating. Um, there are times in my career where I have been graded more on personality than performance. Uh, and that's unfortunate uh, because the performance part of it, and I, 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 don't, I don't say this with hesitation, my performance has been top notch. But that's not always what it's about. And, and there's a certain level of senior level leadership that you have to understand that concept. And there's validity to that concept. At least there's validity to the people who make the decisions in that concept, right? It is not a fair system. It's not designed to be fair. They tell you it is. Like, they tell you it's, you know, all above board. But that's not really the way it goes. Um, for better or worse, like you said, I, there are ways to tweak that. And it's a completely different conversation and podcast to do. But that said, uh, I, I get the emotions you're having uh, or had and why you made the decision that you made. And, and certainly, you know. I respect the fact that you were able to see that and have the self-awareness that um, there was something else there for you. So uh, congrats on that. Do you, you said entrepreneurial dreams. Did you have a specific entrepreneurial dream in your mind when you left the active component? Do you, I mean, you know exactly what this is? Yeah, I mean, I knew I wanted to acquire assets, right? And so I had, I had a thing going in real estate um, and I had amassed quite a bit of money as well. And I, um, I met somebody that I thought we'd start a hedge fund together, believe it or not. And so I'm running real estate deals. I have like a small little hedge fund going on. I'm trading actively. Um, no one ever says that phrase, by the way, a small little hedge fund. Like by definition, hedge and fund are not small and little. I could be, am I wrong on that? I don't know. I don't have the uh, entrepreneurial background. Every time I hear hedge fund though, I think big, large, massive, you know, incredible. What's this? Yeah. Like, well, if you want to talk about dollar amount, right? Like, you know, large or like a decent hedge fund to even like make it, you need to have at least 50 million probably in assets for investor money. And I'm trading with like less than five. Okay. Um, so it's pretty small. So like hedge funds need at least a hundred million to 300 million to be healthy enough, yeah. you know, and I would argue maybe even today, probably a billion, but that's like, that's neither here nor there, but I'm, I have like these dreams. Like I've, I've got quite a bit of money. I want to grow it. I want to attract more investors. I want to do all this stuff. But 2014, this is the year, my first full year as a civilian was a speedy year. Like my partner, both part, one partner ended up like basically committing fraud on one of our deals that resulted in a big loss. Um, my real estate, my hedge fund trading operation didn't do well at all. Like I ended up losing like 300 grand, um, in like a month. Um, so all this like, and I attribute it to arrogance probably. Like I'd done so well in the military and I felt like military skills were transferable into the business world. And they are to an extent, but not, not really from where I sit. Not like actively making real business decisions. Because you're not making business decisions in the Army. So what makes you think you can make real business decisions in the business world? Anyway, I had a shit ton of losses during that year. It was a bad year for me. Um, needed to do some real heavy soul searching. I ended up taking a job. And I used to scoff that I have to make a resume. Like, it'd be really bad if I ever have to make a resume. And uh, lo and behold, by the end of that year, I'm, I'm making a resume and uh, applying for jobs to kind of unscrew the situation a little bit. And I did. I found a great job with a startup. They were treating me really well in 2015. 
uh, learned a lot actually of like how it's done professionally for some really cool people. They're really experienced people. And then that startup had raised quite a bit of money in 20, around that time frame, And they lost, they kind of burned through it all actually. And so they ended up laying off a bunch of people, including the guy that hired me. And uh, by 2016, I'm, you know, I got laid off from this job and it was the best thing that happened to me because it kind of punted me back out into the entrepreneurial setting. And I haven't, I haven't kind of looked back since. Wow. Um, you mentioned that you thought the Army would be good for business. What about the Army trait-wise lends itself to business that is net positive? The best part about the Army is, is that people say leadership, right? But what does leadership really mean? But if I have to define it, it's really about building teams. I'm a firm believer that in today's age, it's very hard to be a solopreneur. You need partnerships. You need alliances. You need to rely on other people to get things done. This world is too complex. Maybe in the 60s, you could have been that, that solo guy, that lone ranger. Um, but today, there's too much complexity. And customers have much higher expectations of stuff. And so you really need partnerships and you really need to be good at building teams if you want to build a company of, I, of a certain size. I can't help but think of what you said earlier on your first deployment to Iraq when you talk about partnerships. You never went to bed because you were afraid someone was going to shoot you in the back. Well, in the civilian world and in the partnership world, it's a lot easier to shoot people in the back. And you had already had a couple of failures. Do you have that same fear in partnering with people at this point in your life? The fear, I don't know about fear because now I know how to resolve the fear and I know what controls to put in place. And I know myself to, on what kind of environment I need to create in order to prevent it from happening in the future. I mean, it could still happen. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. It could still happen. <laughs> um, but now I know a little bit better and now I think the likelihood of it is less, but I think it's one of those checklist sort of concerns that you should address when you're formulating any sort of plan. Like what happens if this, if partner A leaves, how important is, is this partner or this person to the operation? You know, you know, you've got to address those questions and you've got to come up with an answer on how you're going to resolve it. I mean, is there any of the curd A stole, you know, something from curd B and you have to resolve it? Um, training that you had in the past during deployment that comes into play in building these relationships in the civilian world. Yeah. And I think like I had to, I had to experience failure to understand this. And that is like, I don't engage in business businesses nowadays where I'm not in control. Meaning I don't have access. Like I need to have access to the bank account. I pick the accountant. I pick who controls the money or who, flo- who, the, who is in charge of the money. Um, those sorts of things. Right. And I don't leave it up to, I don't leave that responsibility to somebody else. Now you could be like, you know, if you're joining an entrepreneurial team and you have a little bit of equity, you could be the guy that has to take direction from, from somebody else. But for me, I know I need to be in control in certain areas in certain key areas. And I do that through reporting and I do it through like weekly checks and governance and things like that. Impressive. Uh, when does the Tillman scholarship fund uh, start to come into your picture and why? Yeah, so I had so a few years ago I had taken over a distressed logistics business. I turned it around. We did two million revenue when I took over, and uh, ended up doing about nine million revenue, and I ended up selling it. Um, and but there's a lot of mistakes that I made along the way, and a lot of profit I probably left on the table with that iteration of business. And I realized, like, dude, I really, 
it's, it's all good that you can teach yourself and learn on your own, but I really need to stop making mistakes on my own because making, learning from your own mistakes is very expensive. It's far better to learn from other people's mistakes. <laughs> goes, back so to, I, goes back to that marriage thing you were talking about before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so I, I said to myself, look, we've got some money in the bank. I want to be a business guy. Like I'm all in to being a business owner, being an entrepreneur, that sort of thing. I need to go back to school. So I ended up doing, I ended up getting two master's degrees, one in commercial real estate here at Georgia state and, uh, an, M- an MBA from Emory, um, which I just finished a few weeks ago. And the Tillman scholarship kicked in for the MBA. What was that process like for you? So the Tillman scholarship, it was the second time I applied actually. The first oh, time really? I didn't even get an interview. Oh yeah. I didn't wow. even get an interview. Yeah. They left that part out in the, in the write up on you. Yeah, we yeah. rejected well, him the first time. He had to come back for take two. Yeah. I will say this, that I, I didn't even know about the Tillman Scholarship. And I was in Mexico City with my wife at the time. And, like, I, I, I ginned up my application in, like, two days. And I submitted it. So it was a pretty shit application to, to begin with. Oh, okay. Um, to make the deadline. But anyway, the second time around, you know, what I did was I enlisted the help of other people I knew. And fortunately, I have like a lot of cool West Point classmates that are also Tillman scholars themselves. Um, one of my, my history teacher at West Point ended up becoming a Tillman scholar himself too, uh, Robert Mahara. And he like, you know, they just helped me kind of formulate how to apply. And what I really appreciate about them is that they never changed me. They never like, we never lied about who I was. We never lied about anything because entrepreneurial business guys typically are not going to be Tillman scholars. They really like, in my opinion, they really like the healthcare types um, and the doctors and folks that are trying to just get their undergrad degree. Whereas me, there's no real reason to support me. If you look at like my financial history and everything else that I've accomplished. Um, But what my friends helped me do is they helped me clarify my, my, my yearning into real goals and how it helped other people. And so one of the things that I feel really strongly about is like lending, and I, I'm a lender, I lend money out a lot, if you didn't know, in real estate and in government contracts. And I've seen how the government formulates policy on lending, and I feel like there's a lot of things that could change in the way the government does things that really jumpstart America in terms of entrepreneurship and like bringing back small business and like bringing control back into the American life. I think the American dream isn't necessarily to own a home. I think the American dream is to be in control of your destiny. And one of the best ways you can be in control of your destiny is to like work for yourself or run a small business for your community, especially. No, you know, I mean, I, it's funny you mentioned that because I'm, I'm sort of going through that uh, right now uh, in leaving, you know, the, the regular, now look, I work in media and sports media. People who know and listen to this show know that. So it's kind of my, my thing, but you know, uh, since leaving the traditional media platforms of you know radio and regular TV and going into digital and online platforms and getting out of working for a corporation, now I essentially work for myself as a freelance contractor for multiple different outlets. And I tell people I've never been busier, I've never made more money, I've never had more fun, I've never been more relaxed, I've never been less stressed since I just started working for myself. You know, I, I've I've created an LLC and and I have this business that I'm sort of, you know, growing from the ground level up that I'm that I'm using to um, just put myself out there. And it's it it really is. I mean, it's I, I think that's a very lucid point about the American dream 
is more about controlling your own destiny uh, financially, independently, you know, from all those different points. I think if we could get America to agree on that um, and maybe in some weird way, in some antithetical way, that's where we are right now with, you know, control over my body and my voice and my whatever. You get the point. But um, it really just kind of speaks to that that core of the American value that I'm creating my own opportunities. Right. And and that's kind of where all this comes from. I mean, being a pioneer is what's part of being an American, right? The ability to innovate, all these other stuff. It's served us really well over the last 200 years. And um, I also feel that, like, the biggest problem facing the nation is apathy. You know, for some reason that, you know, it's only the fringe and the extreme elements, and even on both sides, those are the guys that donate. Those are the guys that participate. And those are the folks that end up winning elections for politicians. And so the politician has to address the extreme. Because the middle 80%, the middle 90% is so apathetic. And yeah. maybe it's the, we're a victim of our own success. Like, I don't know if I really care, like, what goes on. I mean, now I care because inflation is, like, crushing us <laughs> and stuff like that. But, like, largely, like, who the president of the United States is doesn't have, has very little effect on your day-to-day yeah. life. Your yeah. city council has more effect of that than, 100%. than anything else. Yeah. Uh, but you, I don't know my city council. If you, if you live in Georgia, you know your HOA controls everything. Those bastards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It, side note, HOAs are the biggest racket in America, and I don't know how they get away with it. It should be a 1,000% illegal, and all of them should go to jail. It is the biggest fraud in this country, and I want it exposed from top to bottom. Different show, different podcast, but I've said my piece. And you know you're smiling because you probably have an HOA, don't you? Oh, well, I, I mean, I'm, well, so the debt collection company that I own, we collected debt on behalf of HOA. Oh, man. So, you guys. Yeah. Let me so find I'm, out where I'm you well live. Aware. <laughs> well aware. Um, you stayed in the Army Reserves uh, as opposed to just making a clean break. Why? So I didn't actually stay. I had a break in service. Okay. Uh, Why'd you come back months, in? months, basically. Because I missed the uniform, right? Like, I missed, yeah. I missed the meaningfulness of of serving, I think like a lot, and I'll, I'll be the first to admit a lot of effort and mentorship has been poured into me. Sure. Um, because I needed it and you know, people, and, and I think I have, I feel duty bound to give back in that vein because a lot of people, like if people don't stand up and people don't serve, then, you know, where are we going to be in a generation and, you know, I took it and I, and this sounds very cheesy, but I, I did take an oath to serve for a lifetime of service, um, at least the West Point one. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I just, it just jives with me. I actually make less money. I know this for a fact. I make less money, um, financially business wise because I serve in the reserves, but you know, it's just one of those things that I, I got to do. Um, yeah. Well, the good thing about the reserves, and I've said this for years, as far as the guard versus active duty, you get to date the army. You don't have to marry it. The reserves are the best. I mean, the reserves and the guard are the best because, like, depending on your job, for most people, it's like summer camp. Like, you're there with the boys. You're there with your, your you know, your squad mates or whoever for a weekend. You get to joke around. It's like almost a mini vacation, assuming you're not preparing for a mobilization or a deployment. Or yeah. Like that. Well, it's, remember that command you talked about that you were, wanted to be promised and the one that was going to come in five years. Yeah. Just wait that, that two days a month thing goes out the window when you, when you take command. Just, yeah. I, I don't know if being a commander in the reserves is, is a good thing. So I applaud you for just so for you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm on the second one of, of, of I'm an 06 command now. I was 05 and now I'm an 06 command. And it's a, uh, 
you're doing something every day of the week. But uh, you know, it's like you said, it, it's it's about service, right? Like, uh, I, I I certainly at this point in my life, I don't necessarily need a guard paycheck, right? Like, I, it, it's great that it comes along, and it's nice because you know, as an 06, it's it's worth your time from that standpoint. And sorry to all those people who aren't an 06, but um, you know, I do it more because of, of of the reasons you talked about. Like, I want to give back, and I I still want to be part of the organization in some size, way, shape, or form, and I enjoy leading. You know, I, I just enjoy yeah. being around soldiers always. You know, it's it's the greatest camaraderie uh, on the face of this earth, and it's it's a bond like nowhere else. And for all the bonds you've made in business, for all the bonds I've made throughout all the other civilian jobs I've had in my career, nothing compares to hanging out in a room with soldiers or sitting in the chow hall and just laughing and, and talking and everything else. It's it's that level of closeness. I think it's really hard. And when you go down range with people, it's even better, right? You get even closer. And I think it's essential for older guys to, to stay in the army because especially the ones that served in 2000 to 2010, 2015, because I'll tell you a quick story. I, 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 I deliberately did not want to get promoted to, to 04. I wanted to stay a captain my entire time. Uh, so I did not go to the PME until a two-star general called me and says, you need to go and ordered me to go. But anyway, I go to the captain's career course for military intelligence. I just rebranded. And 90% of the students don't have a combat pass. Yeah. And it dawned on me, like, how these kids are learning, how these, how these colleagues of mine are learning. And they don't have a basis of, like, reality of, like, what they're doing and how it fits into the context of an actual deployment or mobilization. And I was really grateful that I was there to, like, kind of provide my context or my experience, at least, to kind of help mentor them along. Because the next conflict we're going to have where they call up the reserve it is very possible that 80% of the reserves have never deployed. Yeah. And the army is going to rely on that 20% that have deployed in order to lead the other 80. You know, it's funny. I was, I was just a quick anecdotal story. I was at Fort Stewart uh, a week or so ago and we were sitting in the PX in the food court there and having lunch and me and a couple of the officers on my staff and this barrage of like lieutenants and E6s all came in. Uh, and I didn't, you know, I didn't know any of them, but I just, and, and I remember looking at their uniforms and these, they, they look so young and fret. And I guess I'm just old now, Samir, but you know, they look so young and so energetic and fresh face and all those other things. And then you walk by in the uniform and I don't know why we do this in the military. We just do, we have to look up and down everybody's uniform to see what they're wearing and what they're not. Um, and I, but for the record, I don't wear any badges or anything on my uniform. I just wear the, the normal patch and that's it. I do that for, for a reason. I don't. I don't need to prove to the world what I've done, what I've accomplished, and who I am. I mean, sit down and have a conversation with me, and you'll find out what I'm all about. But that said, uh, to back to your point, I looked at their right sleeve, and no one is wearing a combat patch. And I said to my staff, I go, you know, guys, it's crazy. Like, none of these kids have deployed. There was a time where all you thought about was deploying. And now there's a whole section of this military that would literally give, you know what, to go down range somewhere and fight somebody because everybody else around them, it feels like everybody else around them has done it and wait another three to five years until all the guys like me and my group are out. Right. And, and we've moved on uh, both officer and enlisted. That number is going to get even less. So you're yeah. at like 50% of the active force hasn't deployed yet. And that's crazy to think considering, you know, where we are, because in reality, again, there haven't been more than what 10, 12,000 troops in Afghanistan for the last three or four years. So, you know, 2015 was really when it all wound down to next to nothing. And so now you're, you're, you're almost 10 years out of, of, uh, of really no high-level combat operations. Yeah, I know. So I know. 
it's it, it it's becoming a different army. But to your point, I think it's it 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 always is worth saying, and that's why I spend more time um, than anything just sitting and talking with soldiers. You know, put the phone down, sit down, have a conversation with them. Um, stop using technology to be the lead form of communication, and and just sit down and spend time with folks. You know, I, I I've always said that, and you'll always. I, I love to ask my, you know, and it's very difficult when you're a senior officer to get people actually agree to go to lunch with you because nobody wants to hang out with you. Um, it's like you're a leper all of a sudden. You know, you have like cooties and they're going to catch it. But I'm always saying, hey, guys, let's go grab lunch. You know, let's just go sit down and talk and, 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 you know, enjoy each other's company for a little bit. You know, like strip away the uniform and just talk to people about who they are and what they're about and, and, and yeah. connect with them in that way. And then leading them becomes a heck of a lot easier. And, it's, and I think most humans in general like stories. I think we learn pretty well through stories. And you've got to put yourself as a leader in a position to be able to tell stories. Because those younger kids, those younger folks, I mean, they, or the junior folks, need that. I, I hope that's why they listen to this show, right? This show's all yeah. about stories. So um, you have all this going on right now. You know, you have this entrepreneurial business and you're doing, you know, investment in real estate and you're still giving back to veterans. Um, do you have a sort of a short and long term plan for the military and your life and, and where it's going to go? Yeah, I do. Um, I, uh, I regularly engage in exercises that like they that ask me, hey, what does life look like in five years, 10 years, 15 years from now? And one of the things I've learned is that it's very important to be crystal clear on like where you're going and what type of goals you want to have. And it's okay if goals change along the way because of circumstance or something else, new piece of information that you learn, but it is important to have a pretty good idea of where you're headed and the direction you're going in. And so for me, I just want to be a better allocator of capital. Like I'm sitting on $25 million right now of investor money and we've done really well by our investors so far. Um, we lend money to, to the veterans and military officers on their real estate fix and flip deals. So if you want to, if you want to like buy a flipper, buy a derelict house and you want to flip it and you know, you don't want to go through the hassle of a bank or a, or a CD lender, like where we exist for you. Um, that's what trophy point does. And then through that, we are also acquiring businesses and other assets as well. So I'm trying to see a better steward of capital. Um, and at the same time, I just want to continue to serve in the army and whatever, capacity the army has for me and my talent and um what does it look like in terms of rank and position i don't i don't actually know i don't know if i want to define it that way i do i, I want to define it by function and what i can do um and every day i'm working towards shaping that environment to allow me to do that i mean it's very hard to get it's very easy actually to get distracted it's very hard to focus in this day and age and um I find myself just doing a lot of things. Like I hired an assistant, a full-time live assistant now to kind of take off the distractions off my plate so I can focus on the main, main things I got to do. But I can't, I can't remove the distractions until I know what I need to focus on. And the best way to know what to focus on is by, you know, writing out for yourself, this is what I want life to look like in a year, three years, five years, 10 years, 15 years. I want my family to look a certain way. I want my business to look a certain way. I want my bank account to look a certain way. This is how I want to live my life. Like you got to get really clear on what you want and what you want it to look like. And then everything else you can kind of back plan from there. You got to maybe kind of sit down and write a letter about what you want to accomplish and how you want to get there. Right. Like somebody once did years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, exactly. Right. It's, um, 
Maybe your dad knew what he was doing the whole time. Maybe. I don't know. He's, <laughs> he, he's, you know, he's right. I, if, if I ever said he was wrong, he's, he's, he was never wrong. He's always, he's always been right. He's never led me astray. Yeah. Well, listen, Samir, I mean, you know, the leadership comes through and the passion in your voice comes through and, and the clarity with which you've accomplished everything that you've wanted to, uh, I think is, is beyond impressive because, um, there are a lot of us naturally who, when you stumble, it takes us a little time to, to figure out what's next. Uh, and, and it seems like throughout your entire career, you've never, never hesitated uh, after a stumble. And I think that's commendable. And it's certainly something that, you know, a lot of people in our audience uh, can use a good jarring and a good reminding of uh, in, in not only in the military world, but, but in life in general. And uh, I think it's a, it's a worthwhile message. And certainly, you know, being connected to the Tillman Foundation, uh, we've had several Tillman scholars on before. They are, uh, you guys are just all a, a very special bunch. You know, I think part of it with the Tillman Foundation, and this, you know, speaks to you and your own accomplishments, but it's the core of the person of who you are still matters to them, right? What you want to accomplish and how you want to get there and what school you want to go to and who you want to help and all those things, those are all, you know, integral parts of what the Tillman Foundation is about. But if you know anything about Pat Tillman and what that organization is about, the core of who you are is really still what they are driving to figure out and, and who they want to be part of their their group, their foundation. And, and uh, it automatically speaks to me um, that you were, you've been selected among that group because uh, that core of humanity is dwindling, right? The core of the people in humanity who have those core values that Pat has is dwindling. And I think it's just it, it's an excellent representation of who you are um, you can make a lot of money. You can accomplish all these things and do all those, but that doesn't change you at the core of who you are. And I think, you know, we we saw a lot of that over here during this conversation. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, Samir Patel, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground. Absolutely. Thank you. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.